Well, good morning. Now that we've established that all the men need mentoring, I, I will try to step into the gap. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's true. I mean, don't we all? Okay. By the way, preliminary uh, note. By the end of this, that unique training is going to be a very key application to what I'm going to say here today, but I don't have it written down here. So if I forget it, just know that when I, when I get to the end, you're like, oh, what do I, it, that, that would be a great training to go to. So that's all I have to say. Now, we are in the Gospel of Mark. Today's reading comes from Mark chapter 13, starting in verse 28. Mark 13, 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day, or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, we have been going through the gospel of Mark, uh, I don't know how long, a long time now. And what we've been saying as we've accompanied Jesus through this gospel is that one of Jesus' fundamental concerns is to redefine for us what is the good life. What, what leads to ultimate human flourishing. And so last week and this week we've been considering Jesus' teaching about the end of the world and the ushering in of the everlasting kingdom of God. Now, I don't know if you heard that choice morsel that Matt gave us last week where he said that... Um, like, like, if you weren't paying attention, here's what he said. Um, he said that he'd be dealing with the what of the end of the world. And I quote, next week, Steve will tell you when. <laughs> did you hear that? I did. I, I heard it. <laughs> That's a lot of pressure. So my job today is to tell you when the end of the world is coming. And, and that shouldn't surprise you because... If you look through church history, you know that there's been no shortage of prognosticators who are trying to pin down the end of the world. When will Christ's arrival occur? Now, if you've heard of any of these people, probably the one you've heard of is the most recent one uh, named Harold Camping. Remember that guy? Well, okay, let me tell you about him. Um, he, he ran this very popular radio station based in California uh, from the 1960s well into the 2000s. It was a long-running radio show, and he was actually a brilliant man. Camping got a 
degree from Berkeley in civil engineering. And then at some point in his career, he turned that engineering mind toward the scriptures. And it's at one point during his life, he was studying the scriptures for eight hours a day. And that's when he began to notice something alarming. He saw that if you assumed Noah's flood occurred in the year 4990 B.C., I don't know how he got it, but that's, if you, if you assume that Noah's flood occurred in 4990 B.C., and that at that moment, a 7,000-year clock began to tick, and then you subtract one year because the calendar of the Old Testament, calendar of the New Testament, not quite in sync. If you did all that, then the end of the world should occur on May 21st, 2011. He was an engineer. He knew. He, he could figure it out. On that day, the glorified Christ would come, and he would tear open the clouds, and he would, he would descend to gather up the elect and judge the unfaithful. And, he was, and Camping was deeply convinced of this. He wasn't a huckster trying to make a bunch of money, although he did. He, he was a deep believer in this prediction. And he devoted his radio program to the preparation of the faithful and to delivering warnings to the unfaithful for the next few years. Now, I don't know if you saw them or not, but Camping's ministry paid millions of dollars to buy billboard space, television advertisements. Uh, the day is coming. It said, prepare to meet your maker. And through all these media efforts, this guy amassed a huge following, millions of people, millions of Christians, who staked their very lives on his prediction. Now, some of these believers believed it so profoundly and were simultaneously so terrified at the thought of the coming of the day of destruction, of the day of judgment, that they that they took their own lives as a preparation for the date. So, so such predictions are not without tragic consequences. But then May 21st arrived. Camping and his millions of followers waited and waited and waited, and they looked to the skies, longing for the light of heaven to break in upon them, and the closer it got to midnight, the more they steeled themselves in conviction because the Lord is just testing us. He's waiting to the last minute. And the clock hit 11.59. Everyone held their breath any second now. And when the hand of the clock ticked right into place for May 22nd, it was Nothing. Nothing. It was just another day. And, of course, Camping, who was a firm believer in his own prediction, was, in his own words, flabbergasted. He went into seclusion for a few days of prayer and searching the scriptures to figure out what on earth went wrong. He came out of seclusion a couple of days later, with great bravado announced he was off by five months. The real date is October 21st. Well, I'll, I'll, I don't need to, I don't need to t there's no tension in the story. I don't need to tell you that <laughs> he was wrong. It didn't happen. And Harold Camping, after October 21st, retired in disgrace from his role as the 
prognosticator of the end times. And, and, and this guy is only one example of the long list of folks who have tried to tell us when the end is coming. That we are now living in the end times. And every last one of them has been wrong. But, and this may surprise you, I have actually studied the scriptures. Matt told us last week that I would have the win. I do. I have found the data that Camping and his predecessors missed. I'm not kidding. I have. I have. I do have a prediction of my own. I kid you not. Um, now stay with me. But by the end of the sermon, by the end of the sermon, I will prove to you biblically that we are in fact living in the end times. That the return of Christ is near. And furthermore, I will prove it to you biblically, and I predict that not one person here will be able to refute my evidence. So, in order to get there, we have to look at the, today's passage very carefully because end time predictions always require a very close reading of scripture. So, in order to do that, let's look at Jesus' teaching in our passage today under two headings. Number one, we must learn to watch. And number two, we must learn to stay awake. We must learn to watch. We must learn to stay awake. Okay, first, we must learn to watch. Let's start with verses 28 to 31. Jesus says, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Okay. First thing we see here is that Jesus commands us to learn something. And that lesson that we are to learn comes from the fig tree. And the lesson is pretty simple. During winter, the fig tree, like any other tree, loses its leaves. And then when spring comes near, the branches grow tender and the leaves push their way out of the bark. And he says, when you see that, when you, when you see the leaves breaking through the bark, you know that, early, that summer is coming. And in early summer, if you know anything about fig trees, which I don't, I had to read about it, the fruit of the tree then grows um, and is ready for harvest. So Jesus tells his followers that we need to be able to interpret signs. The leaves of the fig tree are a sign that a particular future reality is coming. In the case of a fig tree, that reality is fruitfulness. If you see the leaves, Jesus says, and you interpret them correctly, that should create an expectation of a future that aligns with the sign, in this case, fruit. And that, expect, and that expectation should alter the manner in which you live, he says. If your family depends, for example, on this, if your family depends for survival on the fruit of that tree, you see the leaves come out, it would be a very foolish thing to go on a journey which would cause you to miss the harvest. That, that is not interpreting the signs correctly. That is not altering your life in accordance with the signs that you see. So the thing is, we actually do this by instinct. I mean, Jesus' teaching is clear. 
If we can interpret signs, then it will change the way we live our lives. And we all do this by instinct. When you're driving down the road and you see the school sign and the flashing yellow lights, you, you read the sign, you interpret it, and you change your behavior. You slow down. Now, whether you slow down because you care about the children or whether you just want to avoid a ticket, doesn't matter. The end result is the same. You see the sign, you interpret it, and the behavior is altered. And that's what Jesus is instructing us to do. You must see the signs of the end, interpret them correctly, and then alter your life accordingly. Are we together so far? We're following? Okay, good, good. Then he tells us what the signs will be. He's not just leaving us in the dark here. He tells us what the signs will be. Verse 29. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Okay. Now here's where we need to reach back into last week's sermon. Jesus refers to the signs that we're supposed to be looking for. He refers to them as these signs things. Now, keep that phrase in mind because it's very important. What are these things? Well, if you remember, this whole discourse, this whole chapter began because Jesus and his disciples were walking through the temple, and the disciples are looking around at it and say, oh, this is beautiful. They're marveling at the architecture and the structure of it. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, there is a day coming when not one stone will be set upon another. All of them will be thrown down. And then the disciples ask, if you remember, in verse 13, chapter 13, verse 4, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Okay, so follow. Clearly, these things refers to the destruction of the temple. Yes? So Jesus says the temple will be destroyed at some future date. And his disciples ask, when will these things occur and what, what are the signs that we should be looking for? So Jesus gives them exactly what they ask for. He tells them when it will happen and he shows them the signs that they need to be looking for. So the when of it occurs in today's passage. Verse 30, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until, what? All these things take place. Heaven, and he emphasizes the fact, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So the temple will be destroyed. When will that happen? When will these things happen? These things will happen within a generation. The temple will be destroyed in this generation. And Jesus was no herald camping. Within a generation, 70 AD to be exact, the Romans came pouring over the hills, terrible and swift, and sacked Jerusalem. And in doing so, they destroyed the temple, leaving no stone upon another. And to seal that destruction completely, they set everything to fire, and the city went up in a blaze. These things took place within a generation of this teaching. Okay. So that's the when. And then Jesus explains to them that the destruction of the temple is also a sign. Verse 29 of our passage, Jesus says, So also, 
when you see these things, destruction of the temple, taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. So if we've learned the lesson of the fig tree, then we'll be able to understand what Jesus is saying. The destruction of the temple is like the leaves emerging on the branches of the fig tree. It is a sign that something else is about to occur, namely that the Son of Man is near at the very gates. Mark that. It's a sign that he is near at the very gates. So just to summarize, Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple within a generation, and that happened. And then he said, you must recognize that as a sign of the end of the world, the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's near, so near that you could say he's at the very gates. Okay, let's move on to the second part of his teaching. We must learn to stay awake. Start in verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, notice that Jesus is referring to a separate event in this verse, and he refers to it by that day. That day is not the same thing as these things. I know this is granular, but remember, we're predicting the end here. We have to get down to the details, okay? These things, destruction of the temple, that day is something else altogether. If you look in chapter 13, that day refers to the events in verses 24 to 27 from last week. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So it's very important to read carefully there. If we confuse these things with that day, then there will be we will be in an embarrassing position. We'll be tempted to believe that Jesus taught that his second coming would occur within the generation of his teaching. You see that? But that's not what he taught. He taught that these things will occur within a generation. The destruction of the temple will occur within a generation. And then he said that when these things are accomplished, it is a sign that the end, which is to say that day, is near. Okay. This is very important because Jesus teaches us that he does, in fact, know when the temple will be destroyed. But he is clear at the same time that he does not know when his second arrival will occur. He says it. Concerning that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. There is one who knows the date. And it's not the angels. It's not the sun. Certainly not Harold Camping. It's the Father. Only the Father knows. Now, we'll take a departure from all of that for a second. Just set that down for a second. Parentheses. 
is it me? Do I always have parentheses? I do. It's my thing, I guess. Um, just indulge me for a minute. A lot of people have trouble with this admission from Jesus. And the trouble is this. You Christians claim that God is Trinity and Christ himself is divine with all the same power and attributes as the Father. Doesn't this verse devastate your Trinitarian arguments? Jesus is actually freely admitting here that he doesn't know all the Father knows. My answer is this. There are some verses in the Bible that are very unclear. There are scholars of Greek and Hebrew, which is the language that the scriptures were written in. There are scholars of Greek and Hebrew who debate endlessly how this one preposition should be translated because if you go this way, it alters the meaning of the passage. If you go this way, it's a whole different meaning. And they debate endlessly about these very unclear passages because depending on which way you go with those translations, that could change our entire theological structure. It matters how you uh, translate prepositions. And they're right to debate such things because there are Greek and Hebrew sentences in the Bible that are genuinely confusing. Even, take heart, to those people who've devoted their lives to the study of those languages. But, this is not one of those passages. There is no Greek scholar that I've ever read anyway who debates the nuances of language here in Jesus' admission not to know the date of his coming. Jesus' teaching is as plain as you could possibly get it. The Father knows when the second coming will occur. Jesus does not. But I want you to notice two things about this. If this troubles you, just notice two things. Number one, the purpose of this teaching the purpose of this verse, the purpose of this whole passage is to instruct Jesus' followers about how to live in light of the fact that he is at the very gates. That's what it's for. The purpose is not to explain the inner dynamics of the Trinity. So this verse is there to explain the end and not Trinitarian relationships. And if you use this to try to explain or denounce the Trinity, you're on very shaky ground because that is not what it is for. If you want it in theological language, maybe you don't, but here it is. The purpose of this passage is eschatological, not Christological. The second thing to notice here, purpose, it's not what it's for. The second thing to notice is the manner that Jesus says it. Notice, there doesn't appear to be any embarrassment on his part. He just says it. Also notice, there's no explanation attached to it. He doesn't go on to say, yes, well, you know, because I don't know this bit of information, that means I am less divine than the Father. And you should know this so that you can think properly. He explains nothing. And the disciples don't even ask about it. The disciples have no trouble, if, if you've ever read the Gospels, asking him about the things that trouble them. They're not troubled by it, apparently. They ask him nothing. So this is what I take from the manner of Jesus' comment. We have entered the land of mystery. Elsewhere, Jesus is crystal clear about his membership 
and the way he functions in the Trinity. There's no doubt. He is fully divine, equal with the Father, both in divinity and ability, the perfect image of the Father. And so when he says something like this that sets our minds to whirling, trying to figure out this unsolvable puzzle, and he doesn't give us the key to that puzzle, then I take it to mean that he did not intend for us to come to full understanding on this point. If it was essential for us to understand, then he would have told us, but he didn't. And so this is a place where we simply accept on the authority of his own words that there is a mystery involved that we cannot comprehend. And so for anyone who looks at this verse and says, aha, I got it. That's why I can't believe in the Christian teaching of the Trinity. Then I would say, find another, find another verse to build your skepticism on because this one is shaky ground. Jesus never intended to explain that, that kind of thing here. The difference between the skeptic and the believer here is this. The skeptic seizes upon a verse like this and tries to justify unbelief. The believer comes to a verse like this and says, this teaching produces in me questions that may remain unanswered in this life. But Jesus said it. He is my master, so I am content to believe on his authority, the mystery. Okay. Parenthesis over. So, Back to the end. Given that he is near, at the very gates, and the signs, which is to say the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, the signs have occurred, how are we to live in light of these realities? And Jesus, Jesus is so clear on this. He says, how do we live? Stay awake. Four times... In these few verses, he says it. Stay awake. Now, what does that mean? Well, Jesus, thankfully, gives us an illustration. See, he, he can explain what he wants to explain. He, he knows how to do it. Now, verses 34 through 37. What does it mean to stay awake? He says, it's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So what would you do if this was the world's last night? If, if somehow you got the information passed to you. What would you do if tonight, if this was the world's last night? Well, if you had believed Harold Camping, what would you have done leading up to May 21st, 2011, and then October 21st? We know that lots of his followers saw the signs and altered their behavior by throwing extravagant parties on credit cards because, you know, the credit bureaus are going to go away in a couple of days. So, Free money, they, they threw extravagant parties. We also know that many of them quit their jobs and spent time with their families, arguably a more productive thing to do than the first. And we also know that some of, some of them gave themselves to a much darker end, as I mentioned before. But if this was the world's last night, what does Jesus tell us to do? He says, 
when I return, let me find you doing the work that I left for you to do. When Jesus returns, he wants to find us at our posts doing the work he has assigned to us. And that is what it means to stay awake. To fall asleep, on the other hand, means to drift off in our own pursuits, to become drunk on our own ambition and goals. But it's clear in this passage and half a dozen others in the other Gospels that Jesus has given each of his people work to do and resources with which to do that work. And those resources vary according to our ability, which he determines and when the irresistible light of that day comes streaming in upon this world, his great delight will be to find us doing the work he gave us to do. Now, that might immediately raise a question in your mind. What is the work he has left me to do? You might be tempted to believe that you need to abandon your life's work and become a missionary or a martyr or something. Maybe. I don't know. As pressing as that question is, your individual, scope, your, your individual work is beyond the scope of this sermon. That's where Unique comes in. I would highly recommend it. Um, but let me say two things briefly. The first is with regards to your vocational work. Let me remind you that all work is good. God feeds the world through farmers. God educates the world through teachers. God clothes, clothes the world through factory workers and, and retail workers. If you're not a missionary or a martyr, don't assume that your work is somehow less pleasing to him. I mean, think about this. Could it be that when Christ returns, his face would shine with pleasure to find you folding shirts at the Gap or selling flooring or sitting up with a sick child through the night? Yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. It could be, and it is. Second, the work Christ left us to do is not restricted to the jobs we have. We need to be clear about that. Christ gave us our work in no uncertain terms. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. And that is a very broad rubric. But that is our work. To love the Lord our God with all our hearts, all our strength, all our mind. And to love our neighbor as ourselves. That is the work he left us to do. And the potential manifestations of that work are endless. Okay. If all that's true then I should probably tell you now how I know for sure from the Bible that we are living in the end times and, and show you then how a careful reading of Scripture will prove it. The broad narrative of the Scriptures can be broken into four chapters. Number one, creation. Number two, fall. Number three, redemption, and number four, consummation. That covers the whole Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. We're told about creation in Genesis 1 and 2. We're told about the fall in Genesis 3. We're told about redemption from Genesis 3 all the way up to Revelation 20. It's a big chapter. 
And then we're told about the consummation in Revelation 21 and 22. Now, we have passed through chapter 1. Creation, book is closed on that chapter. It's done. We've passed through chapter 2, the fall. Chapter is closed. It's done. We still live in chapter 3, redemption. And if you read that chapter, you will see that there are a lot of, there, there are a few major plot developments that must occur to get us to chapter 4. And let me outline them for you now. First, we see that we need the preparation for redemption. So you get that in the promises of Abraham. You get that in the giving of the law and the provision of sacrifice, the building of the temple. The next stage of redemption is the coming of the Messiah in humility and weakness. And at the start of the New Testament, he arrives in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Of Nazareth. Then Christ teaches that the next thing that must occur is his atoning death and resurrection. And then the next thing that must happen in the chapter of redemption is that um, is the sending of his spirit to fill his people with his own presence. Okay, and then after the filling of the spirit, do you know what plot point is left between that and chapter 4? There's not one. That's it. Ladies and gentlemen, we live in the end times because the end times began on the day of Pentecost. It's the final moment of the chapter of redemption. And there is only one thing left to happen, and that is the arrival of our Lord. <laughs> I, I, that's my prediction. Prove me wrong. <laughs> it's true. It's true. So how do I know? We, we know because the scriptures tell us he is near. He is at the very gates. And he will come between Pentecost and the beginning of chapter 4. He will come at a moment that we do not know. It could be that he breaks into the world before I finish this sentence. It might be 10,000 years hence. But he is coming, sure as his own words. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And if that's true, then we must stay awake. We must stay awake. We must resist the temptation to fall asleep. And, and I don't say that as a threat or somehow to imply that his work in this world can be thwarted by our sleepiness. It can't. Do you remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus goes at the, at the, the night before his crucifixion. He went to pray and learn to bear the greatest agony of his life. And he gave his disciples work to do. Stay up. Watch with me. Pray. And when Jesus returned to his disciples, what did he find? They were asleep. They had shirked their work. And we get the sense that he was heartbroken at their refusal to stay awake. He says, could you not have watched for one hour? But there is good news. Their sleepiness did not thwart his work. The betrayer came and delivered him over to the Roman tribunal. 
Then they led him to the hill of execution, and there he accomplished the atoning work that he came to do. He shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins and mine. And in that atoning blood was the forgiveness for the disciples and their abandonment of the work that he gave them to do. And it was precisely inside of that forgiveness, inside the shelter of the shed blood of Jesus and the subsequent pouring out of the Spirit that the disciples woke up to their work. And if you find today, even as I'm speaking, you find that you're asleep then the good news is this. He is infinitely merciful to our sleepiness. He is infinitely merciful to our failures. You will find forgiveness for every one of them. He always accepts the weak into his presence. He is patient with our many bouts of drowsiness. What he does not tolerate is a deliberate refusal to stay awake, a deliberate refusal to do the work that he has given us to do. That is a willful sleep. And you must repent and wake up to the reality of what Christ is telling us today. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. We come now to the table, as we do each and every week. This table is meant to wake up sleepy disciples. Every day we live our lives and we have to battle our forgetfulness. We forget that he is at the very gates. We forget that the kingdom of God is real. We forget how much it cost us to become citizens of that kingdom. So it may be that as you come to eat this bread and drink this cup, you are awakened to his mercy and that you will find him granting you the grace to stay awake until he arrives. And so for anyone who belongs to Christ, Come and rejoice at this meal. He will wake you up. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father in heaven, you must know how difficult it is for us to stay awake. You must know that for us, with, no, with nothing for our senses to take in regarding the kingdom of God, we, we often forget. We often slip into the drowsiness of thinking that this world is all there is. That the return of Christ and the establishment of the everlasting kingdom is some kind of wish dream that we made up to comfort ourselves. But Father, when we sit at Jesus' feet and we listen, we find that we cannot deny that he is true and that he has taught us what is real. So, we need your help. Would you grant us the grace as we come to this table to remember what is true. Would you be clear with us about the work that we have here to do? We always doubt ourselves, so we need you to be clear with us. You know how dull of hearing we are. So grant us that grace as we come and sit at the table that you laid for us. I pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. If you belong to Jesus Christ, this is your meal.
Come.